uh, in chapter 13, the longest teaching portion in the Gospel of Mark, uh, Jesus reiterates to the disciples to be on guard. And uh, that's, again, what we um, are trying to do when we say something like family worship or something like that. That's, we're trying to help you kind of help them be on guard. And uh, he says, um, keep awake in 1333, stay awake in 1334, uh, and then 35, stay awake, and then in 37 of chapter 13, stay awake. So that evidently is hard. That's hard to do. May be hard for you to do today when you're in this service. So we know staying awake is difficult, uh, and sometimes it's because of our own making, but they had just had a Passover meal and a several glasses of wine, and they're ready for bed, and yet now they are to stay awake and be prepared. Uh, and so he is calling them to, like, to be spiritually sober, you might say. Uh, one of my friends uh, from high school this week put in their story on social media a video clip from a woman who was talking about the dangers of substance abuse and how they numb you. And she said drinking alcohol is fine if you can do it without trying to use it to dull your pain or fears or regrets or whatever. So I, I think that is possible. The Bible doesn't condemn all the drinking of alcoholic beverages. It just, you, you do understand, it does condemn seeking to find a way to like make things go away with it and, um, and to abuse it. And so um, she said, uh, not feeling pain is addictive. That, that's addictive, not feeling pain. And so if you find yourself using something to dull your senses, you have to get away from it, but you have to create new habits. You, you really do. You have to create new habits. You don't just, Paul, the Apostle Paul will say, put off this and put on this. You have to create new habits. And um, those habits cannot be doing the same old thing. It will continue in the same pattern. So she went further to say, if someone in your family has struggled with some ism, you need to stay away. You have to consider that there might be something there that is inherited. I thought, you know, we're talking about staying awake. We're talking about not just physical sobriety, but spiritual sobriety. And when we think about spiritual sobriety, what you have to do is say, is there, are there things that are dulling my senses spiritually in my life, what do I do to not have my senses dulled, but rather to like sharpen my senses spiritually? And so that's kind of where we are. Uh, last week, we talked about the Last Supper. There was a preparation. There was a Passover itself. We had the institution of communion and Jesus' statement, I mean, sorry, Jesus' statement about the disciples falling away. We quoted someone that said, The self-sacrifice of Jesus in the Last Supper contrasts dramatically with the infidelity of the disciples. It is, in other words, not the worthy for whom Jesus lays down his life, but precisely for the unworthy, even cowardly, and unfaithful followers. So I would just say, if you felt like I just beat you up talking about not having dull spiritual senses or saying, like, be sober in your spiritual things, I would just say, like, um, you're in a long line, including myself, of people who struggles like one of our struggles is to like stay awake spiritually. So just you're in a long line of those. And so we need to understand that and be reminded of that. And what we do is we return to the one, which is part of what we do in this worship service, we return to the one who uh, laid down his life in spite of us. So that's always encouraging. 
It's encouraging. It doesn't mean it doesn't, we're not challenged. We should be challenged, but at the same time, we understand we're encouraged. So today, what we're looking at is Gethsemane, uh, which is a garden, and the following arrest uh, that was a test for Jesus. And so um, Jesus in this storyline, okay, because Jesus is a hero. For some of you, you read the Bible and you're the hero. You're not reading it that well, right? Jesus is the hero who passed the test while his disciples slept. And that's always good to know, and it's helpful for you as you go through your Christian life and you are prone to slumber. You know, it's helpful to know that he didn't slumber or sleep, but he was faithful. And uh, we're trusting in what he's done. So Gethsemane and the arrest are where we're at, and so we start here with Gethsemane. And you see in the Last Supper, Jesus spoke of the bread and wine, and it was a representation of him pouring out himself for many. And so Jesus, this one author wrote, the relinquishment of Jesus' body on Golgotha, however, depends on the prior surrender of his will to the Father in Gethsemane. So Jesus is surrendering himself there in that garden as he prepares to walk the road to Golgotha. And I think we want to understand that and grasp that. He says even further the decision to submit to the Father's will causes Jesus greater internal suffering than the physical crucifixion. I mean, that's, that's helpful to know. The cross is a matter of the heart before it is a matter of the hand, a matter of the will before it is an experienced reality. And that is true of a lot of things in life. It starts with this movement internally, before it shows up in the activity. And that is what we see. Now, you'll notice Jesus' sorrow. So if you're thinking about the depth of this, Jesus is going into a place where he says he is greatly distressed and troubled. So he leaves some of the disciples and and says, like, I'm going to step away to pray. He takes Peter, James, and John, and we see he's greatly distressed and troubled. Verse 34 My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And so he says to the three, he goes even further away, and he comes to them, or he speaks to them and says, like, you stay here and you watch. Now, if you were standing at the eastern wall in Jerusalem and you were just standing, it's kind of closed up now, but if you were standing there and you were looking out with your back to that wall, you would see the Kidron Valley, which is a very small kind of dip, down it's not I mean it's really like you're like very close like 0.2 miles from there to the garden so it goes down and it goes back up and you can see from that eastern wall when you're looking out you can see the trees and they say the trees are uh, these olive trees and they can estimate that because they've taken down olive trees of similar size and breadth Uh, they're 2,000 years old so you it's there's a sense in which when you're there and and, uh, I had the fortunate you know I was fortunate to be able to do that and go there and see that and you understand like what this is like and what the place would be like. But it's just you just think in terms of that. It was common for them to gather there. He is with his inner circle of disciples at this time. He is greatly distressed and troubled. It's almost like there's this sense of alarm in him. Those are very, very strong words, of course. You understand that to be greatly distressed. You know what that's like. And it's not just like, oh, something went wrong at the house. I freaked out greatly distressed. It's more than that. He is bearing this weight. Uh, so much so, he says that, that he is, uh, my soul is very sorrowful, 
even to death. It's like a lament. It's something you would read in the Psalms. I mean, there are certain Psalms that, that they would say like echo this, but it's important to understand how the weight that he is carrying. He is burdened with unimaginable grief. It's not like he's afraid of anyone. He is the most powerful person on earth. Beyond, he's infinitely powerful. But the weight of the grief that he is about to face is shocking, even to death. It's almost as if his body is wasting away before the disciples. And again, they're just in a state of stupor. You know, they're not, they're not thinking about the weight of these things. But it's important to understand that. And he asked them to join him in his trouble to bear the burden with him, to carry the load with him in some way, but to also, I think, to prepare themselves for their time of testing. Both. I think it's bringing both of those things together. Both like, bear with me in this hour that I am facing, and also prepare yourself. Because he already told them, you're not prepared. No, we're going to stand with you. You know? And you think, he knows that they are not. They don't know that they're not. They haven't. They will not listen to him and 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 like take his wisdom. They kind of are holding on to their own. But I want you to think in Luke twenty two forty four it says, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And I've read studies before, you know, where somebody like went through and studied like what kind of stress it would take to do that. But at the end of the day, you would just want to say it is an intense sorrow that he is carrying here. And again, before the actual activity is the anticipation of the activity. And you've probably been there before. Where you're like, I've got to go into this meeting and it's going to be very, very ugly. And you get there and you're like, well, that wasn't as bad as I thought. In Jesus' case, it's as bad as he thought. Like he knows, right? And so and in Hebrews it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. But Jesus is not going to leave this place. He is going to enter in to the full weight of these things. You might say, well, a lot of people have died for a good cause and really physically experienced the same types of things as Jesus. It was not uncommon for someone to be crucified why is why do we focus on him and say it's much greater mark 10 45 he's already told us mark has says for even the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many it's he is paying a penalty he is paying for something he is paying uh this payment you know in a way you could say gethsemane was the well, I think it was, let me see who it was. I'm trying to get to that. Uh, Edward says, this, the first payment of that ransom is like the willingness to become the sin bearer for humanity. That's the first step because that's in the mind and heart of Jesus. Jesus stands before the final consequence of being the servant of God, pierced for our transgressions. And he's about to step into that. All of this is about to come upon him, and the weight of it is on display. He goes on, It is one thing uh, fearful as it would be to answer for your own sins. What if you had to answer for your own sins? 
that would be tough. Jesus is sinless, but if you had to answer for your own sins before a holy and almighty God, what would that be like? But could you imagine standing before God to answer for every sin and crime and act of malice and injury and cowardice and evil for all who would believe that he would carry all of that? An infinite, like, treacherous acts. You just, what would that be like? The way you really understand that is his alienation that he will face coming up where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had never known in all eternity past, up to this point future, he had never known that kind of place, that kind of isolation, the weight of being cut off from God. The, the bearing the weight of just being forsaken of God. He did not know what that was like. He was about to experience what it was like, and it's on him. He, the object, he becomes the object of God's wrath against sin. It, 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 that is a shocking weight that he is carrying. And verse 35 says, and going on a little further, he fell on the ground. The weight that he was carrying was so heavy that it pushed him down on the ground. The weight is more than anyone could bear. He collapses under the weight, which leads to this prayer. And he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, that, this is a powerful thing. There's a lot learned here. And really, if you were to think about adversity and trial and struggle, and this is the highest that you could ever see and experience. And when you see it, you say, what would it be like to be here? He, he is saying this hour, this hour might pass from him. It, this is a, a way to say like all the way through John's gospel, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. The hour has come. It is the hour. And the hour is this hour that the Son may glorify the Father. It is the hour where the Son is going to do the purpose for which He was brought into this world for. Like, why did He come down to earth in this world? And like, why the incarnation? It was for this thing that He had come. What was the cup that He was going to drink? It's the cup of God's wrath. The just punishment that sinners de deserve, he will drink. That, that's where we are. I mean, when you're stopping and considering, like he is standing at the edge of all of this, and he is having to, like he begins with like his will. You know, and you see that on display. He will be handed over to sinners to save sinners. But behind their treacherous things that they're going to do against them, the horrific things they will do to him, is like the, the, the absence of God, being pulled away from the presence of God and enduring the wrath of God on our behalf. One of the things you see about the Son is that in John 6.38 he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He surrenders his will. He lays that down. In the service of these who hate him. Can I ask you something? When was the last time you, in your heart, not just with your actions, but with your heart, willingly laid down yourself for another? 
you might say something like, well, I do what I'm told to do. And I do but that, but, but your, your heart is growing in bitterness instead of like growing like towards like bowing before your Lord saying, I want to serve these people not because they deserve it, but because you deserve my respect and my honor. Father, what would you have me do? Lord Jesus, what would you have me do? There's kind of a fundamental kind of humanness side to this. Uh, one author wrote, it is evident in, that he is imploring in a direct address, like, take this cup from me. Um, in a way, it's almost like he's saying, we know that he talked about the, the great shepherd, and he was like, is there any other way than to strike the great shepherd of the souls of men? So, Jesus is genuinely tempted, in one sense you could say, to forsake the role of the suffering servant. Nevertheless, his will to obey the Father is stronger than his desire to serve himself. I, I mean, I, sometimes, do you ever think about that in your own life? Is, do you ever look at that and say, when I'm considering the life that I'm living, when I'm saying like, I'm just not sure I can do this anymore. When, when I, you're constantly saying that. If you're not saying it on the outside, you're saying it on the inside. And what you constantly tell people is like, listen, when you're teaching your children, you're saying, your children obey your parents in the Lord, you're doing that and you're looking past your child to the Lord. When you're saying as a child, children, obey your parents, you're, you're saying, child, look beyond like your desire maybe even to submit to your parents to the Lord. And, and you could go that with wife and husband and whatever it is. You're laying that down and saying, look, my desire to do the will of my Father, to obey His Word, is greater, is stronger than the desire for yourself. If everything's yourself, if, it's your, if, if everybody's like counseling or speaking to you and saying like, think about you, think about you, think about you. If everybody's saying that to you, you need to say, you know, you think about Him. You think about Him. See your Savior willingly laying down His life as a suffering servant for you and saying, not my will but yours be done. And walk accordingly. That's what we are called to do. We are following in His footsteps. This will be a standard thing for us, I think, throughout our life in prayer to say, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. There's a whole group of people that would say, if you had the faith, you would get what you prayed for. It, it, I mean, I was thinking about this again this week. It takes a more faith to trust, to entrust yourself to the Lord and say, he has greater knowledge of what I need in my life today. That takes a lot of faith. That he has a greater understanding. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being and wisdom. I can say he knows better than what I know. That, that's more faith than saying I have enough faith for him to do what I tell him to do. What is that? Is that, is that faith? That you, you have more faith in yourself to tell God what you need? But not more faith in God to say, Lord, whatever you, you have for me. I think our whole lives are spent praying that prayer. Like, Lord, I desire this. I see it as a good thing. But not my will, but yours be done. 
I, I loosen the grip on the things that I want. You know, and how does that change your family when you loosen the grip on what you want? You know, it's a powerful thing. So, verse 37 to 39. The disciples are not walking this road. They're sleeping. They don't see behind the curtain of the troubles of this life. All of the suffering Jesus is going through, they're so, if they just saw a glimpse of what he was about to face, the sobriety level would go up in an insane level. You know? They would stop thinking about what they were going to have for dinner or breakfast, I guess, the next morning. They would be so aware and grasp those things, and they're not there. They are falling prey to the, tempta- to the temptation to sleep. Some of you might be like, yeah, well, I mean, they had stayed up late. And, you know, or, or you might say something like, well, in my own life, you know, I know, I know that sometimes when I'm tired, you know, it's like, come on. What we're saying is, spiritually, I want you and me to think critically about what it means to be sober-minded in this life that's what he's calling them to to be sober-minded with regard to spiritual things and part of the way you get there is through prayer learning to continually pray and they were struggling with doing that and you and I struggle with that it's hard for an hour if you're struggled to pray for an hour that's difficult for me you know it's just it's hard for me to do it unless I'm under great distress And then I might be able to do that at some level, but I would be struggling along the way. It's like they are to be night watchmen, spiritually speaking. And they are saying, I don't want to fall prey. If you were a night watchman for your family, what would that look like? For you to be praying for them that they may not fall, or some brother or sister, or for your own self that you would stand firm. He comes back to them in verse 40 to 42, and he says... um, It says that their eyes were heavy and that they went to sleep. And then in verse 41, uh, and he came the third time and said, are you still sleeping, taking your rest? It it is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up. Let us go see. My betrayer is at hand. And so Jesus knows what's coming. He's willingly offering himself. He willingly offers himself to the Father, to the will of the Father. I'm going to walk into the darkest thing that you could ever walk into, and I'm willingly offering myself to the Father. And I know that I'm about to do it. I'm going to be one who is going to be treated as a sinner who is not. I'm going to be put into the hands of sinners, which I'm not. And I'm going to lay my life down for sinners who are not even, the ones closest to me are not even standing with me in this hour. And so Jesus embodies those things. And it's interesting to see and understand that Jesus submits to the Father's will and he steps into this trouble. So, Gethsemane is the prelude to Calvary. Listen to this. For in a valley beneath the city, Jesus allows his soul to be crucified and on a hill above the city, he relinquishes his body. Submits everything. And you want to do that in your own life. You want to follow in the footsteps of your Savior Dying to your own will, laying down your life in service to your Lord who laid his life down for you. Now, we keep moving forward. You see the arrest. And, and you just want to see here, like, um, he is, 
this thing where, where you're looking at it, uh, this mob has come, and, and this whole story just blows your mind because look in verse 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And so it's like the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, send somebody out to go and apprehend him. They're coming after him. They're going to get him. And in verse 49, you're seeing uh, that Jesus says, hey, y'all, don't you know, like, I've been here all this time. What, what do you, you, you could have got me any time. What, what are you doing? Why is it secret? He kind of addresses some of their stuff. Uh, in one of, I think it's in the Gospel of John, Judas is with 600 soldiers. So they're bringing this deal, they're like, they're, they're ready to take him out, get it done, and get out, and do it quickly. We already know that they want to do this in a way that could not be seen by others. And of course, Jesus is addressing that. But verse 44 and 45, the betrayer had given them a sign. Now this is kind of a thing that you're like, wow, um, saying the one I will kiss is the man. Lead him, uh, and, and seize him and lead him away under guard. And so when you're looking at that, you go, wow, that's where he started? Like, in that way, why couldn't he have just pointed him out? Why the kiss? Like, it's the, it's the most horrendous thing you could think of, that coming that close to him in that way. And when he came, he went up to him and at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Oftentimes, when you read, maybe in like, you can see it in 1 Samuel when we studied it, where someone, there's like kisses of homage or respect. They, they were kind of a sign of honor, you know? There's even a place in 1 Thessalonians where it's greet one another with a holy kiss, and we're like, I don't want nobody, no man kissing me, you know? I mean, that would be like, somebody come over there and do that, and like, get back, get back, you know, that kind of thing. But in this case, that was something that would have been known. You would be doing that in a sense of like great honor, and the, the picture here is like when he kissed him, it was a lavish, not in a weird way, but in a gripping him and pulling him close. There's a time where Joab, you know, he was a military leader in Israel. He grabbed a man like that. He kissed him, pulled out a, dragger and, a dagger and stabbed him to death. It was almost like a picture, almost repeating that. It was this act of love, Edward says, uh, for a mission of hate. And so you see this betrayal, this one close to him. He's making a gesture like that with his actions and his kiss. And then with his words, he says, Rabbi, which is my great one. We've given him this great title of honor. It was almost like a mockery of Jesus in everything he had done. That's where this was. Verse 46 says, And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and, cut, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. So Jesus like immediately sees, and there's a reaction where one pulls a sword out and cuts off his ear. We don't get the name here. In John 18, uh, 10, the, the, it, what we see is that Peter drew his sword and cut off the priest, uh, high, high priest's uh, servant's ear. And, and then you see in Luke that Jesus touched the man's ear and healed him. And so in the midst of this where you're thinking like, are they going to put up a fight? There's really this one little skirmish. But in the picture, like Jesus is willingly offering himself to lay down his life for these people. Going on to verse 48 and 49. And Jesus says, if you come to me like I was some robber, I'm going to steal from you or take something from you or someone that you would say, oh, I'm coming to get a bandit out there that's hiding with a gun to fight you. Like that's not... 
the situation here. I was always around you, but the Scripture is being fulfilled that Jesus is going to willingly lay down His life. And it's in Isaiah 53.12. It says He was numbered with the transgressors. He is considered a sinner, and yet He had never sinned. And then these verses 50-52, through 52, and they all left Him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Which is kind of an interesting little fact. Like, why would you focus in on that? You know. Well, the first thing is, is they did all flee. They were all going to stand with him. All of us are going to stand. They were all adamant. We will not. Remember Peter, he even said, if I have to like, if I have to die with you, I'm not going to abandon you. But they did abandon. And I think it's important to see that because they all drank from that cup in our last week's series and yet and pledged to die with him, but they all deserted him. Jesus betrayed, right? Jesus, I mean, sorry, Judas betrayed them, but they all abandoned him. Jesus is all alone in what he has come to do. Now you might say, okay, what about the guy who runs away naked? Like why him? And what is, what's going on there? Um, the young man represents all who flew in desperation, you know? And in a way, he has no face here, no, no name. He, he may be like something to help you and me say, you know what? I could be that person. You could put my picture in that picture. Put my picture there. Maybe it would be something that you could say. In a prophecy in Amos that says, even the bravest of warriors will flee naked on that day, on a frightening day. That's kind of the picture of like this all turning away, all frightened, all fearful. We are fragile. Your faith is fragile. Did, did you know that? Like the best of you here. I mean, some, you know, I've, I always laugh because I, 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 there's some people that will be like, I'm the prodigal son, just the worst here. And then there's some people like, no, I'm the, the older brother. I'm the best one here with, among a bunch of degenerates. And you cycle through those in your life. Some of you like spend your life going, I'm the, I mean, some of you forever say, I'm the prodigal. And, and I almost swear it as a badge of honor. And some of you, I'm the older brother. And it's like, both of those have neglected God. You don't want to be either one. But you live in that rhythm. And so you'll be very humble and then very proud, very humble and then very proud. And you know what that's like because we're fragile. You know the hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. You know it. We know it. And we have to come to this place and we say, oh, what a God we serve who's not fragile. He's not fragile like you and me. Mark is helping us see that in one sense, Jesus was already being crucified. Jesus' hands and feet were crucified on the cross, but his heart and will were crucified here. Gethsemane can be called the real earthly battle before Calvary. I read this week, someone saying that they thought of the, um, a writing by J.R.R. Tolkien in The Hobbit. You may have read the book, but... He talks about the decision of this main character, Bilbo, and he says, um, he, and Bilbo's like at this place where he's about to go into this dragon's lair, you know? And he says, going on from there, 
was the bravest thing he ever did. So Bilbo is about to go into that place of the dragon's lair. And it is the, the bravest thing he ever did. The tremendous things that happened afterward were as nothing compared to it. He fought the real battle in the tunnel alone before he ever saw the vast danger that lay in wait. This moment in Gethsemane was the definitive earthly step for Jesus. But unlike Bilbo, he knew the vast suffering that awaited him, and he still chose to go. Jesus' whole life was a life of obedience, but this moment tested his heart and mind more than any other earthly moment. It's a shocking reality when you see that and understand it. Jesus, you know, left the glory of heaven and emptied himself to just enter this earth, but he kept going down from there, and he stepped down, down, down. And, you know, when he gets to the lowest rung, he goes to the cross. It's the place of suffering. And Jesus stayed awake for all of it. He stayed awake for all of it. So that we who sleep, often sleep, might be rescued from God's wrath. He fulfilled his purpose. He accomplished the will for which he came into this earth. And he set before us a life of what it means to follow our Lord awake. I hope we'll begin to do that more faithfully. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the mercy shown to us in our Lord in Christ for what he did for us. For the wonder of this gospel message, it truly is good news. We pray that we would see that. That we would see the intensity of it. We would see how big a Savior we truly need. That the cross would become very large in our eyes. And Lord, I pray that it would change the way that we live. That we would desire and strive to stay awake. To be sober. And I pray, Lord, that you would help um, us all do that for one another. To strive together in the power and strength that you provide. We thank you that Jesus didn't leave us alone, but sent the helper, the Holy Spirit, that we might live a life of sobriety and help others develop in the same. In Christ's name, amen.